0: you. It'll be on the screen behind me. Maybe. It's not. I'll read it from the screen. Beginning in verse 1, and this is after David has, has slain Goliath, and he has come into the presence of King Saul, and they have spoken, and we read in verse 1, as soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself, there's the stripping, he stripped himself of the robe, that is his royal garb, um, that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. So Saul set him over the men of war, that is he was promoted to general. He's a rising star. Uh, And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home when David returned from striking down the Philistine, striking down Goliath, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines and with songs of joy. This is kind of the return parade after the giant um, was slain. They're singing songs of joy with musical instruments, verse 7, and the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his, tens, his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands. And to me, they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And I'm going to need you to advance the slide because for some reason, I am not connecting up here. Or not. Thank you. And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre. As he did day by day... Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. This is attempt, murder attempt number one. But David evaded him twice. So that's number two. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. Verse 13, so Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. Now there's a demotion. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. Then Saul said to David, "'Here is my elder daughter Merib, and I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles.' For Saul thought, "'Let not my hand be against him, let the hand of the Philistines be against him.' And and David said to Saul, "'Who am I? Who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should um, be son-in-law to the king?' advance the slide. Pretty please? Oh good. Thank you. We just see here if I can fix this. You know, I've never had problems so far with Apple. Oh yes. It worked. Now we're in verse nineteen. Um, But at the time when Merib, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, uh, the Maholothite, for a wife. He retracted, he reneged on his promise to give his daughter to David. Now Saul's Saul's daughter, uh, Michal, loved David. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Saul thought, let me give her to him, that she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore, Saul said to David a second time, you shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, speak to David in private and say, behold, the king is delight in you and all his servants love you. Now then become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke with those words in the ears of David. And David said, does it seem to you a small thing to become the king's son-in-law, since I am a poor man and have no reputation? And the servants of Saul told him, um, thus and so did David speak. Then Saul said, thus shall you say to David, the king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of... Philistines. You notice the Bible isn't really um, sanitized. A uh, hundred foreskins of Philistines, and if you don't know what that is, you can look it up in the Webster's Dictionary. Um, that he may be avenged on the, uh, of, the, on, of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. This is now number three, attempt number three. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David arose and went along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. Which is kind of sick at times. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Uh, Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle. And as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. Now 19, chapter shorter. And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants, that they should kill David. This is now number four attempt, the fourth attempt. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David, and Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself, and I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. Um, For he took his life in his hands, and he struck down the Philistine, that is the giant and the Lord worked a great great salvation for all of Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then do you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan, and Saul swore, As the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things, and Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. And there was war again, and David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow so that they fled before him. Then, verse 9, a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul, and he sat in his house with his spear in his hand, and David was playing the lyre, And Saul sought to pin David to the wall of the spear, but he eluded Saul so that he, so that he struck the spear into the wall. This wasn't a very um, safe thing to be a musician in the house of King Saul. And David uh, fled and escaped that night. In verse 11, Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning, but Michael or Michal is actually how you pronounce it, David's wife told him, if you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be, be killed. So Micael let David down through a window, and he fled away and escaped, and Micael took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, "He is sick. And Saul sent messengers to David saying, bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed with a pillow of goat's hair at its head, and Saul said to Michal, this is his daughter, why have you deceived me thus, and let my enemy go, so that he has escaped? And of course, she responds with a lie, and Michal answers Saul, he said to me, let me go, why should I kill you? And then this is the last slide. Now David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah, and told him all that Saul had done to him, and he and Samuel went up to, and lived in Nioth. And it was, it was told Saul, Behold, David is at Nioth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David, and when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, Samuel is the head of the prophets, um, prophesying, and Samuel standing at head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied against their will is the idea. Verse 21, when it was told Saul, he sent another, other messengers, and they also prophesied, and Saul sent messengers again a third time, and they also prophesied all of these against their will. Then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is at Seku. And he asked, Where are Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they are at Naioth and Ramah. And he went there to Naoth and Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied against his will. Until he came to Naoth and Ramah, and he too stripped off his clothes. There's the stripping again. Now he's being forced to strip off his royal robes. Um, and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets. Lord, I just ask in these few minutes that we have that you would take these six attempts on your servant David's life and show us who you are through them and that we might see that you are the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And that just as David was able to trust you in the valley of the shadow of death, so Lord, give us the grace to trust you in the valley of the shadow of death. So Lord, just give me uh, lips to teach and also to apply this to your people, your, your, your family, your sons and daughters. And I just pray your Holy Spirit would take these words and just set them on fire uh, in the hearts of, of my family here and, Jesus, Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, in these two chapters, you have the rise of David, and you also have the descent of King Saul. The rise of David and the descent of, of King Saul. And there are certain commonalities in all six of these stories where Saul seeks to, um, to, to bring David down. I mean, the chapter starts out actually very positively, and David is the golden child. He's the, he's the golden boy of Israel. He just brought down the giant, and everybody's singing his praise, and, and, and Saul, of course, loved him I- as well, but, but um, it's within 10 verses, we find that Saul, who greatly loved David in chapter 16, um, is, is one who now is turned to hate David as a result of, of his rising popularity, and as I said, there are, and because of that, he, he, he tries six different times, seven depending on how you count them, to kill David, who just slew Goliath. Now, there are certain commonalities in all of these stories that I just want to draw your attention to, four in particular, um, that kind of weave their way through that I want you to see in terms of the contrast between King Saul and King David, and then we'll get to the application of it. Um, one is that throughout these, these episodes we find that there are people who love him, who love David. And right out of the chute, as we just read, um, Jonathan, the crown prince of, of, of Israel, saw his own firstborn son and heir to the throne we find that it tells us that he loved him as his own soul. His soul was knit to David in a way that he loved him as he loved himself. And it says it a couple of times. And that love was so intense that he formed a covenant with David, a covenant of faithfulness that he would be devoted to him, stand by him, and support him. And he will be David's greatest advocate other than the Lord throughout the duration of of Jonathan's life. A gift, indeed, to to David. Um, Not only does he covenant with David to be his support, but in a kind of a symbolic way, as I, as I said earlier, he strips off his royal robe and his sword and his belt and, and armor, and he places it on David, almost a humble affirmation that I suspect that he already saw that David was going to be the next king. And he willingly, lovingly gave him those things as a, as, a, as a sign of his submission. But it says he loved him. Jonathan loved him. And you also uh, read when they were coming back on the parade route, and they just, he just brought down the... That the giant, that all the women are coming out with their tambourines and they're dancing and, of course, they're praising and Saul for his thousands, and David for his tens thousands. And that is the turning point in Saul's heart. When he hears David praised, you know, he's the golden boy. He's getting all of the limelight and now he's, he's, uh, he's, he's getting the press. It says that he was angry. This is the turning point for him. The people are praising him. Um, we find also elsewhere, chapter 18, verse 16, it says, um, while Saul's angry at him, it says, but all Israel and Judah loved David. The word love is, is found throughout. They all loved David. First um, Samuel eighteen twenty. now Saul's daughter, Michal, loved David. These are Saul's son and daughter. They love him. 1 Samuel 18, 13, then the commanders of the Philistines came out to the battle as often as he came out. Uh, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. So we find that his, his, he is loved by Judah and Israel. He's loved by Paul, Saul's own family. Um, he's the rising star. He's now on the cover of Time magazine, you know. And 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 Saul, by contrast, is filled with the opposite. Um, kind of driven by a, by a, by a, the sin of jealous pride of someone else getting the limelight and. And no longer being top dog, um, we hear uh, in, the, in the scripture, these two, the two chapters, how he responds. He responds in anger initially in chapter 18, verse 8. He responds in suspicion, 18, verse 9. But most of all, he fears him. He fears him because he knows the Lord is not with him and the Lord is with David. You'll find that word um, in eighteen fifteen and 29 that Saul is deeply afraid with awe of where David is going. Um, so you have David being loved by all. Everybody loves David. And it drove Saul absolutely nuts. Um, because of his jealousy and his pride, it's a, the sin in his heart. That's the fallen condition of humankind, is not to want to play second fiddle to other people and always want to be the best-looking person in the room and the strongest in the room or the smartest in the room. And he couldn't take it. That's kind of the, the, the seed of, 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 of sin in the human life. You look at the very first murder in the Bible, it was the same basic impulse of Cain's um, jealous pride over his brother Abel who did better, and which caused him to pick up um, whatever it was, a knife, and slay his, his brother. It's something that exists in every single human being from young age to the oldest of age, sometimes in very, very destructive context and sometimes in not so destructive but nevertheless still evil. I was, I was reading about Saul, and, you know, what came to my mind was, it might be kind of stupid, but middle school, our teacher, I forget it, Mr. Yoshikawa, I think was his name, and, and he introduced this new girl in front of the class. She's brand new to our, our class. I don't remember if it was sixth or seventh grade. and said, this is, this is Shannon, and she's new to our class. And um, all the boys in my class, including myself, were thinking one thing. <laughs> She's really pretty. Um, And I'm pretty sure all the girls in the class were thinking the same thing too. I don't like her. Because no one wants someone else to come and steal the limelight, the new kid in town and so forth. Well, here it's a a destructive thing. Saul, out of this sense of selfish jealousy and and anger and fear, um, tries to kill David on six different occasions, maybe seven depending on how you count it. And that's another commonality. In each of the six episodes, um, David is preserved. That is, he, he um, spears hucked at him twice, and both times it says he evaded the spear. He didn't, didn't die. That when, when Saul planned his little, little uh, rouge or his conspiracy to have the Philistines kill him by the two, or 104 skins and so forth, we find that, that David is preserved. Um, he does well. He He lives. Uh, we find that when, when Saul instructs his, his servants to go and kill, kill David, that Jonathan gets in the way and Jonathan um, argues or persuades his father not to kill him. So he gets off again. He's preserved. Um, another time with a spear coming at him. And of course, he, um, his own daughter, um, when he, he lays in wait for him, David at his, at his house, it's his own daughter that gets in the way with this kind of strategic plan to help him escape out of the window and so forth. And then the final one, of course, is when he sends three bands of messengers to go seize David. And each time, um, those messengers are seized by the Holy Spirit and forcibly um, controlled in ways that they, weren't managed to, they, they couldn't manage to take David down. Um, including Saul himself, where he came and, and God took control by his Holy Spirit. And, and he was left buck naked on the street all day and all night. So you have everyone's loving David, um, except Saul, and you find him repeatedly hating, angered, um, fearful of David. You find David repeatedly um, delivered, or should I say preserved, through it. Um, and by the way, I just think it's probably salt in the wound, by the way, that, that um, I mean Saul's own family, firstborn son and daughter, are helping him. And then, of course, the Holy Spirit. My, my, uh, my connection is going in and out, so I have to apologize. Um, but then the last part that's also found in, in all the way through, these are kind of the four things that are common to these different episodes where Saul is trying to kill David, um, is, su- is a success. You find the word success throughout. Um, 18 verse 5, and David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. 1814, and David, this is amidst Saul's wrath, David is being successful. 1814, and David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. Um, And that's, of course, the reason why he was successful, because God's grace was with him. Uh, Verse 15, and when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. 1830, then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success. This is a success story amidst wrath, um, than all the servants of Saul. So they had, um, so his name was highly esteemed. So there you have kind of a short of it, is, is three, six different episodes where Saul is trying to kill David. David is gaining in love by the people and even the family of Saul, while Saul is hating. Um, David is delivered all six times. That is, he's preserved, he's protected all six times, and in the midst of this wrath, he is being successful. And of course, the text gives us the key to his success. It wasn't that he was uh, a brilliant tactician on the battlefield, bringing down the Philistines. It wasn't because he was especially cunning or because he was charismatic. The tagline that you find associated with David throughout his life is this simple statement, that the Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. That is the key to his rise, is the sovereign grace of God. That's the key to his rise. Now, that's kind of the end of the teaching part. Now, what are we supposed to learn from this? These six different attempts on David's life, who's loved by the people, who's hated by the king, nevertheless, who's preserved and who is being successful. I find myself asking the question, so Lord, why didn't you take him right from the battlefield where he slew Goliath right up to the throne? Why does he have to go quite literally through the valley of the shadow of death? And what, are we, what, what did he learn from these experiences and what are we supposed to learn from his experiences in these two chapters? Well, one might answer the, the, the question this way and say that, well, simply put, David was being taught how to trust the Lord in these, in these episodes where he was attacked. And that would be a, a, a truthful answer. David had already learned to trust that the Lord was a powerful deliverer in his life um, through real experience. And as, as I said on a number of occasions, um, faith grows Not in the abstract or in the theoretical, but faith grows as the truth of God is trusted in the midst of very real and oftentimes painful experience. That's when faith grows, not in the abstract or the theoretical, but faith grows as we come to rely and experience the truth of God in very real tangible history, life, flesh and blood, time. That's how we learn to trust is when the truths of who God is um, are brought to bear upon an experience and we learn to trust him in that way. And David had already learned to trust the attribute of God as the powerful deliverer. Um, In his life, he had faced lions and he had faced bears. And at each point, he recognized the grace of God was with him. He experienced God's delivering power and therefore learned how to trust him more, more in his power and his deliverance. Of course, the the great battle with Goliath, Goliath was yet another instance where he trusted in the power of God's deliverance and he acted in that faith and experienced God being there with him on the battlefield. But here... Now he's in a slightly different context. And he's got to figure out how faith lives in a different context. Now he's not fighting against the enemies out there, Philistines. Now he's finding himself oppressed by an enemy who's part of the people of God. Uh, an enemy which God in his providence has placed over him. That's, it's, a it's a different reality. It's one thing to face an enemy that's out there. But now his enemy is someone that God had placed in governing authority over his life and how is he going to live by faith in that condition? You can't just kill him. can't take his life because he's the Lord's anointed. So how do you live by faith in an oppressive context where you can't remove the hand of oppression? It's an interesting question because we, we face... More and more, that's that, that same question: How do we, as believers, live in a world which is increasingly hostile in its governing structures, toward Christianity, toward the claims of Jesus, to the exclusive claims of Jesus, to the supremacy of Jesus, to the teachings of Jesus? How, how do we live by faith in a structure where God has placed us under authority? I mean, that's the difference in context that David's experiencing. It was Goliath was an enemy. Now his enemy is the king who's been placed over him. And it's going to test his faith in a different way. And it's going to teach his faith in a different way. So yes, in one sense, it's to teach David how to trust the Lord. But the way in which faith grows in life that I see in this particular these two chapters, is that it it brings David face-to-face in experience to realize truths about God, perhaps, that haven't been tested yet. That is to say, here, let me hopefully provide a a distinction that's very important for us to make. Um, The distinction between faith itself and the object of faith, that is what we believe what we believe in, who we believe in. Faith doesn't grow by talking about faith. Faith grows as we experience truth, objective truth in life as to who God is. Or let let me give an analogy, because you might be thinking, I really don't know what in the world you're talking about. Um, Indulge a, a climbing analogy. I have a couple of climbing ropes in my house. Um, Dan Overby and I used to do a lot more climbing than we, we do these days, but we'd take some guys out in Chicago out to the only place we could climb, um, Devil's Lake, terrible name for a place to go climbing. But um, we would oftentimes repel off the, off the top. We did this at men's retreat a few times. Um, and I, I, I really honestly don't like repelling because it's scarier than anything. I'm not afraid of heights, but they do, they do scare me. Um, and the hardest part, that's... You know, I don't have a phobia of heights. I, you know, just strike that whole thing. I'm afraid of heights. <laughs> the worst part, the hardest part, you're connected to anchors, which then anchor your rope. And, and you know, the thing is, is I, I, I have read the data on how much a carabiner will hold, how much a, a strap will hold, how much my ropes will hold. And it's far more than, um, than I ever have to worry about, the hold of my truck. That doesn't really help you when you're leaning out over the edge. And in that moment, you're like leaning out. And the burden, get this, the burden upon the repeller, the guy who's leaning back over the 100-foot cliff, and you just know that that's death without a rope, um, that the burden on the person who's repelling is to trust. Trust. That's, that's, that's what you have to do to lean out over the edge. That the, your sole responsibility in that moment is one of trust. The sole burden of the rope is to perform. It's to hold your weight. The repeller's job is not to hold up his weight. That's the rope's job. His, 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 his part is to trust the rope upon which he's now hanging his life. The rope's job is to do the work, the labor, the hard stuff of holding up his weight. There's a difference between the burden of trust versus the burden of performance or work or labor. And the same is true in our spiritual life and in David's life and everybody who has, who has, who's read and come to understand how the Bible works and how reality works. Our burden as God's people it's not the burden of performance or work. Our burden is to trust. Doesn't mean it's a passive, non active trust. A person who's repelling still leans out over the rope in trust. Faith is something that always has a sense of motion to it. But our job is the burden is to trust. And throughout the Bible, the wonderful thing is the burden upon the Lord, I should say the burden that the Lord places on himself, is the burden of performing and working on our behalf for his glory and our good. He bears the weight. We trust that it will hold. And you think about that. When God brings his people into, like David, into these scenarios where life is at stake, David is basically told, lean against the rope. Maybe you haven't quite done it this way before because you've never faced a king in Israel. Lean against the rope, and I will bear the burden of meeting you there and showing myself faithful in the middle of that conflict. And as one leans out in trust that the Lord will be faithful, then, and the Lord meets the person there, and you realize he really was there, he really did care, he really was with me in the valley of the shadow of death, well, then you find it easier to trust him the next time. Because you've hung on the rope once. You know it holds your weight, not just theoretically, but experientially. That's what's happening in David's life. But as I said, um, his faith grows as it experiences the truth of who God is in various ways. And, and this, these, these stories, these six stories of, of attempts on his life, um, show us really how the Lord is working in David's life. David is pretty passive in these two chapters. it's always Saul acting and trying to kill, and David's being preserved and, and protected all the way along. And And I think when he gets to the end of these these experiences, and they're going to continue on in 1 Samuel, that he comes to see that the Lord proves himself. He proves himself to be a faithful preserver and protector of his people. He proves himself. Not that he has to prove himself, but he wants to because he loves us, and he has promised to preserve us. Even if it's preservation of life Through death, he has promised to never leave us nor forsake us and never allow us to somehow um, terminate or self-expire, that he will preserve the life of those who trust in him. Think about it for a moment. These six episodes, every time David escapes, and in a variety of ways. Sometimes it's because he manages to avoid the spear. But we mustn't for one second think that it's because he got lucky or because Saul's aim was way off because he was nearsighted? The Bible won't let us read it that way. David escaped because the providential hand of the Lord said, No, the spirit is not going in to my, to my anointed. That when he conspires and, and says, Go out and get me some foreskins. And he comes back with 200, and he's, he's preserved through that conflict. That it wasn't because he was a, 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 a champion swordsman. It was because God in his providence preserved him. When Jonathan, who loves David, gets in the way and persuades his father, don't kill him, why would you do such a thing? And Saul says, okay, I won't. It's not just an accident Working in and through that is the hand of God's providence through Jonathan, not now. And he preserves him. The next spear, he preserves him. Saul's own daughter, when she comes up with this little escape plan, it's not the escape plan that, that preserves David's life ultimately, but God working through that. God providentially preserving the life of his chosen person, the one that he loves. And, of course, the gloves come off, the the providential gloves come off in the last episode where Saul and his messengers get caught up by the Holy Spirit, and they can't touch him because the Spirit coercively takes over their wills and forces them onto the street buck naked. That colors all of the rest to let you know. The Lord's the one preserving. The Lord is the one protecting David's life. And it was experiences like this where he was leaning out against a rope and God showed himself to be the faithful preserver that would lead David to pen some of the great Psalms that we have in the Old Testament. He didn't look back and say, Well, that was an accident or well, I evaded because I'm quicker than Saul. But he'd look back and he'd say, Though I walk in the midst of trouble, this is his psalm, Psalm 138. You preserve my life, you stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies and your right hand delivers me, and the Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Like all of these experiences of seeing that God was the preserving hand in all of his life enabled him to say with conviction, the Lord is the stronghold of my life. He is, not theoretically, but in reality. And the same is is true for you and I Is when the Lord in His providence takes us through the valley of the shadow of death or through conflict, relational conflict, or through health issues. He's there. His preserving grace is there. I had a woman come up to me after the first service. And she said, you know, that reality that Jesus, God, is the one who preserves changed my perspective on my upbringing. She said, I, I was, my father wanted to try to abort me twice. And she went on to say that she, of course, had came down with cancer and had had a pretty massive uh, surgery. And she's telling me this, she says, and for the longest time, I looked back and I, 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 um, I lamented and struggled with the idea that my dad didn't want me. And why would God allow cancer into my life? And she said, but a great deliverance has happened in my life to see things differently, to know that the Lord preserved me in the womb. And the Lord preserved me through my cancer. And seeing it differently. So that what once was a self-absorbing pain became... A reason to worship the lord who meets us in 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 our in our battles of life are we leaning against the rope and saying all right lord you say you're going to meet me here and we don't always know what meeting me here is going to be like or what it's going to look like or how long it's going to take david's going to go through this for years but to know that each and every instance the lord is there he is the preserver of life and when we come to our last breath he will be there to preserve us and take us home I mean, that when we became Christians, basically the message, after we heard the good news of what Jesus has done for us, is the Lord says, now you've got to lean back on the rope. You stand at the edge of the chasm of sin and judgment and death. Your job is to trust. My job and my son was to perform labor and work for your salvation. Your job is to trust and my job was to win salvation for you. Will you trust the rope? Will you trust me as the preserver of your life, as the savior of your life? So David learned this, and then the last thing here is that, um, and this may come across a bit funny, but the Lord proves himself a faithful fulfiller. It's pretty clear that that the Lord had a purpose for David's life, that he was going to be king, already been anointed. And through these two chapters, you find that the Lord's hand is on him, and he's winning the affection of just the right people, and God is granting him success, military success. He is moving up the chain. God is moving him towards the fulfillment of his purpose in his life. That's why David can say in in Psalm 8, he recognizes that he doesn't have to force his way up the ladder of kingship. He doesn't have to take it. He doesn't have to force his way into the will of God. At almost every point in his life, he resists it. Rather, he recognizes the Lord. It's him who will fulfill his purpose for me, his purpose for me. And my purpose is to be king, and he's going to be the one who does it. He trusts that God will be ultimately the one who will fulfill. Again, our job is to, and David's job was to trust God's fulfilling power and the Lord's burden that he placed upon himself was to take him there, to fulfill his purpose in his life. And we have a lot longer to go in the book of 1 Samuel before he actually becomes king. But you see him beginning to fulfill his purpose for his life. And it it just is a tremendous liberating truth for me, and it should be for you, to recognize that while, while David played a unique part in history that no one else can play, that God has called and gifted Every one of us to, tr- to play a strategic purpose in his eternal kingdom work. Everyone who trusts in the Lord. Each of us has a purpose. There's, it's, it's, your life isn't random. It's, it's, it's not chaotic. It's, it's, it's not luck. It's, it's not fortune. But he placed you here in the 21st century in Fairfield for a purpose and for you to carry out that purpose. But here's the thing. Your job and my job is to to lean back and trust, to trust there is an action to it. But ultimately, God's job is to fulfill that is, to accomplish His purpose in your life and in my life. That ultimately, it's not up to me, and it's not ultimately up to you, it's up to Him. That's what the Apostle Paul was getting at when he was writing in in, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. When he said, we are his workmanship. He's the worker and the craftsman. He's the one who's, who's making it all happen. We are his workmanship created by God for good works. Now that is his purpose. Works of sacrifice and love and compassion and works of speaking forth the wonderful grace of God and truth of what he's done for us in Jesus Christ. Good works, which God prepared beforehand. that we should walk in them. It's this way of saying he is going to accomplish his purpose in your life. That's his job. Your job is to act in faith and trust that he's going to do that. Amen. Now that is that, 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 that truth is very important, especially for a culture that's saturated, saturated in kind of the rugged individualistic, I can make it happen, I can do this myself, I can climb the ladder myself, or people who live in this culture who, who, who are completely living riddled with doubt that oh, I, I, I can't, I can't, follow God's call in my life. I'm not gonna achieve God's purpose in my life from blah, 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 blah. I, I have frequent conversations with people who are making that transition from high school, college, and then beyond. And one of, the, one of the repeated questions or fears is a better word is, you know, I'm, what if I make a wrong decision and I miss God's call in my life? And really, the, the kind of the response, in varied ways, to say, hey, listen, do you trust Jesus with your life? Do you want to serve him? And if the answer is yes, it's like, you know what? He will fulfill his purpose in your life. Even if it takes some detours to get you there, he will fulfill his purpose in your life. And you know what? For All of us in here who are true believers, he's already doing it. Your call and purpose isn't some mysterious thing out there you have to clutch at. If you're living for Jesus where you are and you're trusting him, it's already being unfolded in your life. Just rejoice and know that the Lord is the one who fulfills his purpose for our lives. He's the one who bears the burden of performance. We simply trust and walk. And he provides the guidance, provides the routes, the open doors, the opportunities. All we have to do is in trust, lean back against the rope and follow. So, I guess the question really is, you know, is your life leaning against the rope? Are you wearing the wrong burden? Do you think you're the one who preserves your life? You're the one who does the working and the labor? Do you think you're the one who's fulfilling your purpose or God's purpose for your life? Because if so, then then you're wearing the wrong burden. That's the Lord's. Our burden this morning is wherever you are, however much or little conflict, and whatever you're walking through, whether it's the valley of the shadow of death or it's a sunny, grassy knoll, are you trusting in the moment that he is meeting you? He's preserving you through lots of providential ways, bringing people into your life just when you need them, like Jonathan came into David's life, and to be able to look and say, the Lord is the stronghold of my life. When we see him like that in our lives, you know what will happen? We won't need music to worship. We'll say with David, Psalm 138 at the very beginning, I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart, Before the gods, I sing your praise. I bow down towards your holy temple, and I give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why? Because I experience it every day. And when we walk with that kind of faith, then your walk is a walk of gratitude and joy, knowing that. Even though we walk in the valley of the shadow of death, we don't have to fear any evil because the Lord God is with us and his rod and his staff will comfort us all the way along the way. And someday after this life is done, we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let me pray. Lord, we just thank you Thank you, thank you, thank you for your goodness and your grace and your sustaining power, your presence in our lives. Though oftentimes we choose not to see it, though we choose to see things through the eyes of of the world as a random incident, chance, accident, rather than seeing your hand all around us each day providing food and shelter, providing for us fellowship just when we needed, a phone call just at the right time, food on our table, transportation, a place where we can sleep without having rain come down on our heads, that you preserve our faith. And someday, Lord, you will show yourself to be um, our great shepherd and take us home and lead us into the resurrection and a, and a new creation. And Lord, we just thank you for that. Help us to see through the eyes of faith. Help us to lean back on that that rope in faith, knowing you bear the burden and the work of performance um, because you love us and because you have promised Never leave us nor forsake us. Help us, Lord, in our unbelief and give us strength and conviction of your truth. In his name we pray.